I'm excited to continue our series in the books of in the book of Acts, the ends of the earth, and um, and we're covering a lot to, tonight and this weekend is Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 12, and we're encouraging everyone to read through Acts 11 and Acts 12 throughout the week, whether you read it once or twice or three times or four times or a hundred times, wherever you are, let's just be reading the Bible constantly. So we're always in God's word, but also so that we continue to connect with, uh, with the church uh, as, as a whole. And, um, and if you remember, uh, well, last week we encountered something that changed everything. We called it, it was, a, it was a turning point in the history of the church, a turning point in the history really of the, of the world. And what happened was Peter got this vision saying that all these foods that were once unclean are now clean. Then Cornelius, who was a Roman soldier, centurion, uh, got a visit from an angel saying, go get Peter and have him have lunch with you. And that's exactly what Peter did. A man who was Jewish by religion and ethnicity and nationality, he goes to a man who wasn't Jewish, and he entered into his house, and he had dinner with, with him, and something is never done before. Well, now, as we come to chapter 11, there are a lot of people. It's actually a small group, but they're growing, and they're strong, and we're going to see them later on in Acts that they're going to start causing trouble. They are demanding from, from Peter, what happened? Why did you go and eat with somebody who is not of the Jewish faith and Jewish nationality? And they are upset. And so here's what we read in Acts chapter 11, verses 1 to 3. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. They were mad at Peter. They were mad at him because they went against the the traditional dietary customs. They went against what they were all for. They went against all these sorts of things, and, and they weren't happy about it at all. And so Peter, what he does is he tells the story from the beginning. He says, I had a vision from the Lord. He said an angel went and talked to Cornelius, and he's telling them all these things. And they're wondering why he would eat with these types of men, these types of people. And they start fearing that if, if this is allowed, it's going to be a slippery slope to allowing all these other things going on. But Peter explains his story, and at the end he says this. He says, I was compelled by God. That's why I did what I did. And so verses 4 to 17 is Peter retelling this story, retelling what God had done in and through him, what God empowered him to do about the Holy Spirit coming over him. He says, I, I had no alternative. I had to do what God has called me to do. And then in verse 15, Peter says this, as I, as I began to speak, 
and this is when he was in the house of Cornelius, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think I could stand in the way? When they heard this, they had no further objections, and they praised God. Three times... Luke, the writer of Acts, tells this story in in the book of Acts three times. The reason this is uh, significant is because back in those days, they wrote on what was called papyrus scrolls. And these papyrus scrolls were really the forerunner to paper. And they would write on these papyrus scrolls, and you only had a limited amount of space. The longest papyrus scroll back then was about 35 feet. And... The book of Acts is about 35 feet of papyrus scroll. So as Peter is thinking, as Luke is thinking about what he's going to write, he has to be very careful and clear on what he's going to include because there's only so much he can include on this papyrus scroll. But he chooses to write this story three times. The story of God changing everything, of God revealing to Peter, of God revealing to humankind that the old covenant is gone. Now we are living in the new covenant, that we we are to love God with our heart, with our soul, with our strength and our mind. And he's telling people that that things are different now. And Luke wants to emphasize this. He's emphasizing the fact that all people belong to God's family, whether you're a Jew or non-Jew, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, belong in God's family. And that is the crux of the issue that is going on, that Jews and non-Jews belong in God's family now. Why? Because when Jesus died on the cross and when he rose again, he brought all people together because we're all in the same playing field We're all sinners in the need of a Savior. Another reason, a possible reason, that that Luke includes this three times is because later on in the book of Acts, the end of the book of Acts ends with the Apostle Paul, also known as Saul, under house arrest in Rome. There is a possibility He's writing this to a Roman soldier, Theopolis. There's a possibility that Paul could use this letter in his defense. So Luke gives an accurate account of everything that goes on, potentially, potentially helping Paul in his defense. That's just speculation, but something to kind of think about. Then the church in Antioch. In Acts chapter 7, In Acts chapter 7, Stephen was executed for his faith. That means he was martyred for his faith. The believers then were scared and they scattered. Some believers just were scattered and didn't do anything. A lot of believers were scattered to all these different regions and areas, and they were preaching Jesus. Not only were they preaching Jesus to the Jews, they were preaching Jesus to those who were not Jews, to the Gentiles. And many, many people believed. They, they preached in places like Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. If you can see a, the picture of the map up here, they, they had these things. And so, so they were going around and they were, they were preaching. You got 
You got Phoenicia there, and, and you got Antioch, and, and, and Antioch is up, up there. On a side note, the Antioch we're talking about is right there in the right-hand corner. It's the Syrian Antioch. There's another Antioch that's north of the map there, and we're going to talk about that Antioch at the very top there, Poseidon Antioch, uh, either next week or the week after. But the Antioch we're talking now is the Syrian Antioch that's just... Look at Cyprus there. It's like, a, it's like a finger pointing to Antioch. And so that's the Antioch that we're talking about. So, so what, what has happened is that they're going around and they're preaching. And, uh, and then the word of, of this got to the apostles because they're preaching all these different cities. Then believers came to Antioch and they're preaching in Antioch. And word is spreading so much that he gets to Jerusalem. You have the 12 apostles in Jerusalem. And then they send Barnabas. Remember Barnabas' name? Son of encouragement? They send him to Antioch and say, hey, what's this going? What's going on? Everyone's preaching about Jesus. Like, it's just spreading. What, what is happening? So they sent Barnabas down to get an account of what's happening. And chapter 11, verse 22. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with their hearts. He encouraged them. Verse 24. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to their daily, or were brought to the Lord. Verse 25. The Barnabas, then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year... Barnabas and Saul went with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Let me highlight a few things about the city of Antioch. Antioch was the third greatest city in the history uh, in the world at this time. Uh, next to Rome and Alexandria. And Antioch was, was, was the third greatest city in the world during this time. It was known for sports. It was known for its trade. It was known for all sorts of things. It was also known for a, a, a worship of, of, a, uh, 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 of a goddess named uh, Daphne. And Daphne was this, uh, the, the, the Greek uh, legend goes like this. That the, the Greek god Apollo fell in love with a human ma maid named Daphne, and Daphne was this human maid, fell in love, they, you know, got married or did whatever those Greek gods did with them, and then through this legend, they built a temple five miles outside the city of Antioch. It was a massive temple, and you had priestesses there, and their religious act of service was to be with people. Now, there's a lot more to this story, a lot more that could be said, but I just want you to, to, to see something there, that in this city of trade, in this city of commerce, in this city of sport, in this city of all sorts of cultures, kind of a melting pot coming together, you also had what was going on, a huge influence of ungodly living. When people talked about uh, 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 the, the morals of Daphne, there was a common phrase, the morals of Daphne was a common phrase that in this time period, they knew it meant loose living. And so at first glance, you might be thinking, well, how in the world can God's love be seen in this type of environment? How in the world can God's 
message be spread in this type of environment, but it was. It was a dark time in different parts of Antioch. There were, there were difficult times, but God's message got through, and it was spreading like wildfire. Why? I think because there are so many people who desperately needed the love of God, who desperately needed to know that they were saved by grace. So many people desperately needed to know that God loves them regardless. I think they really needed to know all of this. They needed to know the truth of God. And when they heard the truth of God, so many of them started coming and knowing the Lord. And sometimes in our lives, we think that there's no hope. We can think that there's, there's nothing out there, like this is it. Like sometimes we can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. We can't see the forest through the trees or whatever analogy or whatever phrase you want to use. But the promise we have in Scripture is that God is always with us. That even in our darkest moments, the Lord is with us. And it may not always feel that way, but the Lord is with us. In Antioch, in such a dark city, the people thinking, how could the love of God, how can the message of God be, be just, you know, be a part of that? God's message can go through anything. Time and time again, the message of God's love and grace just goes through all things. And in our lives, if we think there's nothing left, hold on to the truth and promises of Scripture that God is in charge, that He loves you, that no matter what happens, you are still His child. And so the love of God just spread through. The Holy Spirit was moving and active. And sometimes we just got to rely on God and trust God that, God, you are in charge, and I'm going to rely on you, God, and only you. And so, so while this is going on, Barnabas goes to Tarsus. Barnabas goes to Tarsus and he gets Saul. Now, we, last time we heard about Saul was in Acts chapter 9, verse 30, which was like three weeks ago. But in our passage, it's really nine years have passed from Acts chapter 9 to Acts chapter 11. Nine years have passed. And then they're in, uh, uh, Barnabas goes to Tarsus, gets Saul. Then they go back to Antioch. And there, for one year, they start preaching and sharing the message of Jesus and teaching and talking to Jews and Gentiles and everyone. And, and I could just imagine this excitement and this movement as people are hearing the word of God, as people are hearing this, this fresh word from God that they've never heard before, as people start realizing that God is changing their lives and their lives are becoming more and more fulfilled. It must have been an exciting time. So Saul and Barnabas and the disciples and the early Christians, they're all preaching and, and they're all sharing and doing life together and they're excited. And it was there in Antioch that they were first called Christians. Did you know the word Christian is only used three times in the New Testament? Is that kind of shocking? First called Christians in Antioch. The, the word Christian in Antioch, it was a nickname. It, 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 it was a nickname. For example, history tells us that, that, that years after this in Antioch, there was a, 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 an emperor that came back. His name was uh, Jillian, Emperor Jillian. And, and he had a beard. And I don't know if it was like a braided beard, if it was a long beard, but he had a beard, you know, like a, like a, like a beard. And, and, and they nicknamed him the goat. 
And it wasn't like the GOAT, like the greatest of all time and GOAT, like Kobe Bryant as the GOAT of basketball, along with Michael Jordan. Yeah. But, but he had a beard. They called him the GOAT. Now, I don't think they called that to his face, but, but they called him the GOAT. So Christian was a nickname. But here's what's interesting about the nickname Christian. They embraced it, and they loved it, and they said, yes. Why? Because we are followers of Jesus. We are like Christ, and that's what we want to, want to know. So from a nickname, this movement continues to grow. They embrace that nickname, and it was a beautiful thing. Verse 27 of chapter 11. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. They did this, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. These prophets came, and these prophets, during this time, they did two things. One, they foretold. Foretold, meaning they would foretell the future of what is to come. God would tell them, they would foretell. The second thing these prophets would do is they would forth tell. That is, they would preach the God, they'd preach the message of God boldly. So you have foretell and foretell. Forth, preaching the message of God boldly. In this case, they were foretelling the future that a famine was coming. And, and when these prophets came, Agabus, one of the prophets says that the Lord gave them a message saying that there's going to be a famine in the land. And you want to know their first response? How can we help others? That's powerful. How can we help others? If we know of calamity coming, if we know of difficult times coming, it's almost second nature to think first of ourselves and our family. But their first response was, how can we help others? Isn't that powerful? Famine is coming. They said, okay, how can we help others? But notice in the, in the scripture there, something very fascinating is that they, they were wise stewards with their money. That's what's implied there. They were wise stewards with their finances and their resources. They didn't just blow their money on everything. And so what they were able to do is say, we could help here, we could help here, we could help here, we could help here, we could help here. And they gave the funds of Barnabas and Saul so they could go to Jerusalem and help during this difficult time of famine. Wow! They were able to help because they were wise with their funds and they're able to go and help others. It reminds me of Philippians chapter 2. Verses 1 to 4. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion to make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, be one in spirit and one of mine. And here we go. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, 
not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Looking not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. May you and I be men and women that just not look at our interests, our family's interests, but look at the interests of others. I was talking to Jerry today about this passage. I was like kicking ideas around as I'm getting the message ready. And so whoever's there, they, they, they get to, they're stuck discussing things with me. <laughs> and, and Jerry said that uh, Pastor Gallagher had this famous phrase, and I hope I don't butcher it because I'm just thinking out of the top of my head. He said, Pastor Gallagher said that everyone wants to be a servant until they're treated like a servant. Huh, that's pretty interesting. Our goal and our job as followers of Christ is to be generous, is to give, is to treat others better than ourselves. That doesn't mean that we look at us and we go, oh, I'm nothing. No, but it's to have a high love for all those around us, whether we like them, whether they're like us or not. We look at them with the way God sees them as his child. Because God loves us regardless of how we act. He still loves us. So let's have that type of love for others. Let's look at the needs of others. Yes, it says look at our needs as well. Let's look at our needs, but also the needs of others. And so who are the people around us that we need to help, that who could be helped, who you know and who you love? Who are the people that we know that we could help and we could love? Well, then we transition to Acts chapter 12, and we learn about the real king. Acts chapter 12, verse 1, it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. Do you see this drama that's just continuing to go? It's like this fast-paced action that's like one thing after another, after another, after another. So King Agrippa, or King Herod Agrippa, rather. King Herod Agrippa is the king we're talking about. It's King Herod, also known as King Herod Agrippa I. King Herod Agrippa I was, was liked by the Jewish people. He was even somewhat liked by, by the Romans. I, uh, can we have something on the screen here, I think? Is there something there in the next slide? No, never mind. <laughs> is that funny? And the slide, no, never mind. All right. <laughs> King Herod Agrippa is King Herod Agrippa I. And he was thought of by the Jewish population as, ready, their man. Like, like, we like this king. He's a good guy. He's like, he's like our guy. And, uh, and that shows in what happened because King Herod Agrippa I had James, the brother of John, killed. And then when the Jewish people liked it, he goes, oh, you like that, huh? All right. Peter, get over here. And then he's going to have Peter executed. Notice what happened, though. King Herod Agrippa I. That's who we're talking about here. This king has James killed. James, the brother of John, also known as the sons of Zebedee or the sons of thunder. Those were the ones that said, may I be at the right hand or left hand of the father? And the, 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 it, was, it was that James. Then he realized he killed somebody that wasn't super high influential. 
He went with like the middle influence just to kind of, I think, test the waters. And then when he realized he got approval, he's like, let's go to the top. Let's go to Peter. So he goes and he gets his troops to Peter and he brings Peter into the fold. Now, King, Agrippa, King Herod here, it's King Herod Agrippa I. He had a son. His son is King Herod Agrippa II. And we learn about this King Herod II in Acts 25 and 26. And this is the second time that the word Christian is used in the Bible. Or uh, by this time, I think it's the third time. But King Herod Agrippa II, his son, says, Do you think in such a short time you could convince me to become a Christian? So that's King Herod. So he gets, Peter gets thrown into prison. And when he's thrown into prison, he has so many troops around him. I don't know the exact number, but it's probably 20 or 30 troops around him because they don't want him escaping. He's locked up. He's chained up. He's surrounded by soldiers, and it's late in the night, maybe early in the morning, two, three, four in the morning. Everyone's asleep, and then an angel comes. An angel comes, gets Peter, and says, let's go. So they walk right out through the gate with all these guards guarding Peter, guarding one man. And they come out. As Peter gets out of the gate, he realizes it's not a dream. It's not a vision, but this is the real life. This is the real deal. Peter then goes to a house by the name, by the house of, uh, uh, the, and the owner of the house's name was, was Mary. And this Mary was the mother of John, also called Mark. On a side note, John Mark traveled a lot with Peter, and he wrote the Gospel of Mark, which is the earliest gospel written. So then Peter goes, he escapes, he goes to the house, and, uh, and they're praying for him. They're having like an all-night prayer meeting for Peter. The early churches, they're praying, oh, Lord, save them. Oh, Lord, this. Oh, Lord, like, like we know you can do great things. We've seen you do great things. You can continue to do great things. And then this is what happens in Acts chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. There's humor in the Bible. You're out of your mind, they told her. They're praying for Peter to be rescued. And they say, you're out of your mind. So, you're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting it was so, they said, it must be an angel. Remember, they're praying for God to intervene in a miraculous way. But then they said, oh, it just must be an angel. Or it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to, to be quiet. And describe how the Lord had brought him out from prison. And then Peter says this. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this. He said, and then he left for another place. Then he left for 
another place. This passage I love because it shows the realness of the early church. Sometimes we could read the Bible and we could put these biblical characters, these biblical figures, these real people on pedestals like they had it all figured out. Sometimes what happens is, is we'll look at the early church and go, man, if only we could be like that because they had it all figured out. Can I tell you something? The early church was figuring life out as they went along. Here they are praying for a miracle. A miracle happens and they're like, nah, it's not Peter. A miracle happens and they go, oh, it must be his angel or something like that. A miracle happens, then they finally go and they go, oh, Hey, Peter. And they erupt in joy. And Peter's like, shh, 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 keep it down. They still want to kill me. And then it says he went to another place. After this passage here, we do not hear much more about Peter. He went to another place. And after chapter 12, we don't hear much more about the 12 apostles until Acts chapter 15. Chapter 12 is the turning point in the book of Acts. Because Peter kind of goes under, you know, lays low for a little while. The apostles, you don't hear them all together in Jerusalem as much anymore. And by the time we get to chapter 15, about... Uh, or, or sorry, about chapter 12, about 12 years have passed since Acts chapter 1. So 12 years have passed since leading up to chapter 12. So in six weeks of doing Acts, 12 years have, have passed. So then what we see here is that after this chapter, we'll see James, the half-brother of Jesus, emerge as the central leader in Jerusalem. But let's go back to that prayer meeting just for a moment. They're praying for a miracle. They're praying that God would show up in a mighty way, and he does. And it took them a while to realize it, but once they did, they're saying, praise God. What is it in our lives today, tonight, that we're asking God to show up for in a big way? What is it for in our lives today? We're saying, God, I need you in this area. My encouragement is to not give up on that. I wish I could say, I'll pray for you and God will answer all of our prayers, but that wouldn't happen unless the Lord wanted it to happen. Our job and our goal as followers of Jesus in whatever situation we're in is to be faithful. And we have the promise that no matter what happens, we will have eternal life. And God wants to give us life and life to the fullest now. And maybe what God is doing is he's working in our lives and he's making us stronger than we ever thought we could be. Maybe God is working in our lives and we don't even realize it, but maybe it's going to be a month two months, two years down the road, then we could look back and go, wow, now I see what God was doing. But when we're in the midst of a storm, when we're in the midst of uncertainty, sometimes things don't make sense. Sometimes the best thing we could do is surround ourselves with godly brothers and godly sisters to say, just help me get through this difficult time, whatever that difficult time is. 
And sometimes God does show up and he answers our prayers. And sometimes we go, was that God? The answer is yes. It was God. As the band comes, let me close with this. Through chapter 12, Luke has told the story in such a way as to leave the first half of his book with a direct showdown between the official earthly king of the Jews, as King Herod Agrippa I, and the real king of the Jews, Jesus the Messiah. The good news of Jesus' kingdom has been announced in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria. And now the second part of the book, the second part of the book is now going to focus on what happens when the message of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, his death, his burial, and resurrection is going to focus on when that message is proclaimed to the entire world. Because now they're going out to the entire known world preaching the love of Christ, preaching the message of grace. And the second half of Acts is going to be a wild ride of what God is doing in and through these men and women of faith. So tonight, what are we to do? Let's be brave. Be brave in sharing the message of Jesus with boldness and kindness and grace. Tonight, let's acknowledge Jesus as our Lord, as our King, and let's live our lives for Him. And when we live our lives for the King, we want what the King wants. And last, be real with yourselves. Let's be real with ourselves and let's rely on God. And let's have and accept the grace of God. And I think there's a number of you in here who need to do a better job of having more grace on yourselves. Maybe you're too hard on yourself. Maybe you just need to say, God, I need your grace and I need the ability to receive your grace. So whichever one of those stands out to you, just think about that, process that, ponder it. And may the God who created all things speak to you in a way where you hear him and you go, thank you, Jesus. Let's stand and let's respond in song.